0: studying the book of Acts under the banner eternity in their hearts. What do people look like? What do they commit themselves to? What are they all about once they understand the eternity that God has put within their hearts? Well today we're looking at chapter 3 of the book of Acts and I want to read a story that's found in the first eight verses. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Last weekend, we looked at Peter's first sermon. And we saw it as an example of the bold witness that God intends for every follower of Jesus. And we unpacked both of those words, bold and witness. Well, today, we're not going to look at Peter's second sermon. We're going to look at the events that led up to that sermon because there's a lot of truth inside of those events. And as we consider it, you're going to find it's a story of contrast. And that's our title today, A Story of Contrast. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of preaching and teaching your truth to thousands of men and women every weekend. I am not worthy of that honor, and I am totally incapable of fulfilling that responsibility. Apart from the Holy Spirit, I can do nothing. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Empower me for preaching and teaching your truth desperately needed in a world of lies and deceptions. And empower every one of us so that we might understand your truth and in faith apply your truth and begin to reflect your truth to a broken and divided world. Father, now more than ever, the church needs to be the church. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful in our generation And in this hour, do it through instructing us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. Much like a skilled writer, or an accomplished composer, or an expert photographer, or a savvy advertiser, When God wants to get our attention, he often employs contrast. Because contrasts capture our attention. They highlight alternatives. In the spiritual realm, alternatives like light and darkness, truth and error, faith and fear, life and death, spirit and flesh. Sometimes the contrasts that God wants to convey are obvious. They're articulated in words. Other times, they're less obvious. They're packaged inside a story where you have to do a little digging before you can see them. And other times, the contrasts that God intends are hidden in plain sight. Like the truth Jesus often camouflaged inside of parables. And when that's the case, we'll miss those contrasts altogether unless we're listening to the author of the book, The Holy Spirit of God. Now, the story we're going to consider today has examples of all three kinds of contrasts, obvious ones and concealed ones. And the first one falls into that latter category. It's hidden in plain sight. It's one that could easily slip under your spiritual radar because it's concealed inside of a very mundane, matter-of-fact observation. Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. Now, I want you to notice they weren't going up for sacrifice, because they understood the old covenant sacrificial system had been done away with once and for all by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. The religious leaders hadn't grasped that. They were still offering up sacrifices. But Peter and John understood that, so they weren't going up at the hour of sacrifice. They were going up at the hour of prayer. But that's not the contrast. The contrast is that it was Peter and John who were going up to pray together because those guys couldn't be more unalike. In fact, there are numerous hints in the narrative of scripture that indicates they graded on one another. You see, Peter was an impulsive, take action and think later kind of guy. His life motto was ready, fire, aim. <laughs> John was the exact opposite, a head in the clouds, contemplative poet, a dreamer who liked to talk at length about deep philosophical matters that probably bored Peter to tears. Peter walked on water, hacked off a soldier's ear, and denied Jesus three times. You would never find John doing stuff like that. He would have been busy thinking. He was usually pictured being right next to Jesus, often physically leaning on Jesus and hanging on Jesus' every word. Later, when others write about Jesus being born, John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, their real differences, and I think their very real tensions, were exposed in that brief period between the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The disciples were standing on the shore of the lake where Jesus had just fellowship with them and he had commissioned them and he had restored Peter to his commission. And immediately after Jesus restored Peter, Peter asked this question, Lord, what will that guy do? And we know he was talking about John. He was all bent out of shape. Well, what's John got to do? Because this mission needs doers, not dreamers, So what's he got to do? And I love Jesus' response. So godly. It's none of your business. It's none of your business, Peter. Move on. So these guys were historic antagonists. Doubtful of one another. John probably saw Peter as a dangerous hothead. Because he was. And Peter probably saw John as a useless dreamer. But look at the contrast after Pentecost. The doer and the dreamer are tight. The antagonists have become allies, partners in ministry. Because out of all the 12 and the 120, they, those two, were going up to pray together. And when you're going up, before the Lord to pray, you don't pick as your prayer partner somebody you can't tolerate. You pick somebody that you feel unity with. So I wanna suggest to you that the first miracle of chapter three is not the healing of the paralytic. I think the first miracle is the healing of the relationship between Peter and John, the relational miracle. And not only was that the first miracle in the chapter, I'd like to suggest that was the most significant miracle in the chapter. Because moving forward in the work of God's kingdom, that restored relationship had far greater implications than the healing of one paralyzed man. And I say that because unity is the miracle that prepares the way for other miracles. The relational miracles God brings about, the ones that change our relationship with Him and our relationship with one another, are far more significant than miracles of healing or financial provision or deliverance or words of knowledge or divine protection. And I say that because those miracles require the power of the Spirit. And the power of the Spirit is released where the unity of the Spirit is embraced. Would you read that with me? The power of the Spirit is released where the unity of the Spirit is embraced. That's why Satan continually seeks to divide believers. He knows very well that a divided church might work feverishly, but it will not work very many miracles. Because division is sin, and sin quenches and grieves the Holy Spirit, and when you grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, you're not going to see many miracles. So the contrast involving Peter and John and what happens subsequently serves in this chapter to remind us that when we allow the Spirit to make us one at heart, then we're on our way to making a difference in the world. And you can't reverse the order. You can't serve your way into unity. That's why I often refer to what God has been doing at ACAC as a miracle. That's why I stress continually the need to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's only when we're walking in unity that miracles are going to happen. I got a text today from one of our members who was in the service last night, and he had his elementary school-age daughter with him. And immediately after I made this point, she leaned over to her dad and said, the opposite of division is multiplication. I'm going to hire her to help me put my <laughs> sermons together. <laughs> I would have made a great PowerPoint. Okay. The opposite of the division Satan wants to bring about is the multiplication that God wants to bring about when his people are one in spirit shows you why God put me in this position. It requires the intelligence of a seven-year-old. I'm, I'm in my sweet spot. <laughs> the next instructive contrast is also hidden in plain sight, but it's a sobering one. It's the contrast between what God intended the temple to be and what the temple had sadly become. The temple was originally intended as a reminder of God's presence with his people. It was intended as a house of prayer, a place of instruction, a place of worship, a place where people could encounter God. But over the years, the temple had been severely compromised by competing agendas, factions, political concessions, religious compromise, and corrupt leadership. That's why Jesus said, You've replaced the commandments of God with the traditions of men. The love of power had taken the place of the love of God and humanity. Leaders called to serve the people called the people to serve them. And God's international agenda, all ethnos, had given way to national narrow fervor Israel first and Israel only. So, rather than alleviating human suffering, the religious establishment of Israel intensified human suffering because they held out promises that they could never keep. And all of that was captured eloquently in one scene a paralyzed man lying at the door of that temple. As he lay there, he was surrounded by magnificent architectural reminders of God's existence, God's power, and God's loving heart. But he remained lame. He was hopeless in the very shadow of a place of hope. He was paralyzed in the shadow of a place of God's power. But that power had been lost. And that tragic contrast warns us that compromised faith cannot heal paralyzed humanity if Satan cannot divide the body of Christ he will seek to compromise our convictions and our practices. A compromised faith may have silver and gold but it can't say to the paralyzed stand up and walk. It may have high television ratings, it may boast of trending on social media, it may have a massive following but it can't say arise and walk. And once again, Satan knows that. So he rarely attempts to lead God's people into a whole-scale blanket rejection of God's truth. That would be much, much too obvious. Instead, he merely suggests one small compromise after another. Most often in the name of remaining relevant. Relevant in a changing world. Even though the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. It's offered in the name of remaining positive in a negative world. Well, there's nothing more positive than God's truth. It's offered in the name of being progressive when it's actually regressive. It's the same old darkness. And where Satan's advice to make compromises so you'll be relevant, where that advice is followed, the church is left with beautiful gates and wonderful symbols that only frustrate paralyzed humanity in their shadow. The third contrast in this story is between Peter and John's original agenda and what actually unfolded. They had come to pray, but they ended up involved in healing and preaching. And that abrupt change serves to remind us that if you want to live in God's power, you must be open to God's interruptions. If you want to be used by God in powerful ways, you've got to be willing to sacrifice your sacred schedule for the interruptions of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be willing to drop what you're doing and do what God has just asked you to do. Well, like many beggars before him and many beggars after him, the paralytic knew the first key to success in begging. It's the same key as in business. Location, location, location. So every day, his friends laid him by the highly trafficked front door of the only church in town. And there, he could appeal to the compassion or guilt, either one works, of the worshipers. He was a first century version of the folks you now find regularly at busy intersections in our city during morning and evening rush hour. You know who I'm talking about, the folks with the cardboard signs telling you that they're homeless and they're hungry. And and that's always a disturbing experience because you don't know, is that person really homeless and hungry? If so, you'd probably gladly assist them. But we know that some of them are charlatans and it's a hoax and so you just don't know what to do. Well, that's where this fellow was in the first century. As people walked by him, they really didn't know what to do. He called out to Peter and John, same way he called out to countless others before them. He called out for attention because he knew people inherently are uncomfortable with looking at need. We don't like to look at unpleasant realities. That's why we tend to look away from painful things rather than look directly at them. So he understood he needed to be proactive. He needed to grab people's attention. And he knew that the sound of a human voice is much harder to resist than just print on a cardboard sign. Something about a human voice is far more powerful than signage or statistics. Now to his surprise, unlike the majority of people who avoided eye contact, Peter and John riveted their attention on him, like he was the only man in the courtyard. And that's another contrast. Those who walk in the Spirit can't turn a blind eye to human suffering because God's love won't permit it. They can't drive by urban neighborhoods and say, not my problem. They can't drive by pockets of great need and ignore them. They can't ignore the plight of the poor. They can't ignore the victims of injustice. They can't ignore the pains of the hurting. They fix their gaze where others conveniently look away. And they do so even though they know that looking will probably prove to be inconvenient. That they'll probably have to alter their agenda. And even some of their sacred cows and some of the things they've argued for will have to be edited. They fix their gaze on suffering because the more intimately you know God, the more your heart breaks with the things that break God's heart. That's how you can tell you're moving into intimacy with God. Not by how often you attend worship, but by your heart breaking with the things that break the heart of God. The fifth contrast was clearly stated by Peter. It's the contrast between what the beggar requested and what the disciples gave him. He asked for money so that he might survive another day. They gave him a miracle so that he might stand for the rest of his life. And that symbolizes a very essential truth. The spirit offers the paralyzed new life, not assistance in the old life. See, this is a picture of what our commission is. The lame man simply wanted to be supported in the condition that he was in. Like the addict who hits you up for money with some false story just so they can remain in the very condition that is destroying their life in 24-hour installments. This man wanted to be supported in the condition he was in. God wanted to completely change his condition. Do you see the difference? Others had helped him get by. God's people helped him get up. The gospel isn't a system for managing the effects of sin. It's the power of God to get out of the business of sin. The message entrusted to us as God's witness isn't a here's how you can get by message. It's a here's how you can get up message and move on message. The gospel isn't a message of coping. It's a message of conversion. A lot more people would welcome it if it was just 10 techniques to coping with the mess you're making of your life. Because that still leaves you in charge. But it's not about coping. It's about conversion. When you get out of management and bow your knee to the only one who has the right stuff to manage your life. That's why I often say, following Jesus, Properly understood is a selfish thing (laughs) because it's the best thing you can do for yourself. I said at the outset that the healing miracle recorded in this chapter, and the story of that miracle is a story of contrast, some of them obvious, some of them less so. And each one of them has to say something to us about people who understand the eternity in their hearts. But to summarize them, I would say this. The story reminds us that the Spirit leads us to see our brothers and sisters with fresh eyes and lost people in new ways. The Spirit will lead you to look differently at your brothers and sisters in Christ, to see former antagonists as necessary allies the Spirit will lead you to see need rather than to conveniently look away from it and feel the broken heart of God and fix your gaze and get involved so that those who are currently paralyzed might walk. Friends, I don't want ACAC to be like that first century temple. I don't want people dying in the shadow of our doorstep while we lock ourselves up in irrelevance inside these walls. God has called this to be a place that gathers inside the walls because without the Spirit we are irrelevant, but then goes outside of the walls, individually and collectively, to fix its gaze on the needs of humanity, announce the message of the gospel, and help those who are barely getting by to powerfully get up and find new life in Christ. And someday, after Jesus returns, when they're writing the history of this place, I pray that will be our history. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in a culture that's all about division and name-calling, help us to model the unity of the Spirit as we call on the name of Jesus. In a culture of hatred, help us to manifest love. In a culture of ridiculous overstatements, help us to speak the truth. In a culture where men seek political leverage, help us to seek spiritual power. In a culture addicted to materialism, addicted to fear, Addicted to hatred. That simply wants to get by. Help us to boldly witness to the one who will help them get up in new life. Father, I pray that in light of this story of contrast, we will more greatly contrast the world around us. And be like that city set on a hill that's obvious to all who look in its direction. And I pray that as always for your honor, not ours. Because your honor is our blessing. And I pray that for the sake of people who need the church to be the church. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.